0: On a hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee sits Jesus, the Son of God. He sits with a crowd of Jews who have come because they have seen his miraculous works. Jesus had been healing the sick of their afflictions, he had been giving the blind back their sight, he'd been causing the lame to leap and run, and he'd been casting out demons of those who were possessed. And Many had come to Christ because of the blessings that he had been dispensing. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, welcome to Convergent Church. My name is Jameson. I'm one of the pastors here. You know, our church really started with this idea. It was an idea that we would be a people who would incline our lives towards one another as we become more and more like Jesus together. To converge means literally to come together. It means to intersect. It means to meet at a point, and and for those who call Convergent Church home, our meeting point, our point of intersection, the point where we come together, is the saving sacrifice of King Jesus. That's what we come for. But much like those followers of Christ on a hillside some 2,000 years ago, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we do not always come to Christ, not always on Sunday mornings or even when we come to him on a personal note with the best intentions. We do not always gather on Sunday mornings seeking the will of God. Some of us, unfortunately, seek less than Jesus. And I want to confess that I, I too am one of those people, I too often seek less than Jesus. You see, every time I preach, I'm preaching as a sinful man. I will preach as someone whose heart and mind and soul are riddled with sin and who feels the effects thereof. I am a man who preaches better than I live. And the actions that you see me take do not always indicate what is actually going on inside me. And so this morning, Jesus is speaking to me as well as he's speaking to you as we sit on a metaphorical hillside with Christ and we glean from him. And it's Jesus, one with total inward purity, one with total outward purity, the sinless Son of God who knows what the word purity actually means, he says this in Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That word blessed that Jesus uses means happy or content or favored. So what Jesus is saying is happy, content, favored are the clean in heart, for they will see God. And I know many of us hear that. We hear blessed are the pure in heart. And most of us sort of give an eternal amen. We go, yes, Yes, we give that internal assent and it resonates inside of us. But I know when I read these words, these words fly in the face of the way I live. And I think they fly in the face of the way most of us live. It's a, it's a deeply countercultural statement. It's a statement that rivals our worldview as it did Jesus' first audience 2,000 years ago. You see, the Jews... They were people who didn't really prize inward purity. But outward purity, outward cleanliness, outward holiness was something that was very high on their priorities. In the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, there are over a hundred things in that book that can make one unclean or impure. For the Jewish culture, something being unclean meant that it was not fit For the worship of God. Or if it was a person, that person who was unclean was not fit to enter the presence of God. And so Jesus' audience on on a hillside some 2,000 years ago doesn't expect him to say, Blessed are those who are inwardly pure. They expect him to say, Blessed are those who are pure in body, who have an outward cleanliness, who are ritualistically clean, who don't eat certain foods and don't touch dead animals and don't associate with other unclean people and don't wear certain kinds of fabrics. These people will be blessed. These people will be favored. These people will be content. But Jesus turns that idea on its head and he says, no, it's those who are inwardly pure who get to see God. Let's ask some questions. How and why? first question for the day, what does it mean to have a pure heart? What is Jesus getting at with this statement? And the place I'd like to start is first by asking the question, what does Jesus mean by the heart? What does that word heart mean to Christ? What does it mean in Jewish culture? Well, my father, he passed away in March, and um, for a couple months after that, I, I was obviously dealing with some deep grief. And so I saw a a grief counselor. His name was Greg. And he really helped me get in touch with and deal with the feelings and emotions that were going on inside of me. And one day I was having a counseling session with Greg and I remember talking to him and I remember just saying, Greg, my heart is just so broken. And Greg challenged me to, to restate that statement, but to give voice to what I really needed to say and what I really felt. And and I believe I said something like this. I said, Greg, it's as if every part of me aches. I feel like my soul is tearing apart. All I can think about is the absence of my father. My spirit has no rest and all I want to do is find a way to bring him back. That's a lot of stuff. When we use the word heart, we mean more than a mere organ, and the, and the Bible does too, Jewish culture did as well. The Bible's concept of the heart isn't a physical organ or merely the emotions that we feel, but the center of our being, our desire, our place of decision-making, where our thoughts come from, where our will comes from, as well as the emotions that flow out of us. The Bible's concept of the heart is is the true self. It's what I think and want and feel on the inside, separated from what the outer Jameson might be doing. Now, I know my wife's heart. We're going on 10 years of marriage next month. I know my wife's heart, but but don't applaud because it's not because I've chased my wife's heart and have tried to know my wife's heart. Here's how I know my wife's heart. My wife's heart is not here. My wife also does not wear her heart on her sleeve, like I do, my, my wife wears her heart on her face. And so when me and my wife are having interactions, I can say something and I can say, honey, how do you feel about what I just said? And she'll say, that was great, honey, that was just fine. <laughs> but her face belays what she really feels, that perhaps I've said something hurtful, Perhaps I've said something domineering. Perhaps I've said something that did damage. The heart is what we really think and really want and really feel, who we really are, where God only sees. That is the concept of the heart. So if that's the concept of the heart, what does Jesus mean by pure? What is purity? Each of us has a concept of purity, for some of us, it's abstaining from certain actions before marriage. For some of us, it's not being around certain kinds of people, unfortunately. For some of us, it's wearing certain kinds of clothes. For some of us, it's bathing a certain kinds of day. But what, but, but what does Jesus mean by purity? Well, the word katharos in Greek, which is the word purity, means clean, blameless, or unstained from guilt. In the word of God, the concept of purity tends to have two specific but very intertwined meanings. And the first is this. It's an inner holiness that is opposed to or rivals an outer holiness. It's it's an inner holiness that rivals or is against outward piety. And we see a counter picture of this in the Pharisees and Sadducees, whom Jesus often confronted for their mere outward cleanliness, their outward holiness. He said this to them. He said, woe to you. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside also may be clean. For Jesus, purity does not come from external actions, but from inner moral Holiness, the religious elite of Jesus' day, believed that they could just simply perform certain actions and that that would make them holy or clean. They believed that they could observe the cleanliness laws of the day. They could not eat certain foods and wear certain clothes or do certain things, pray at a certain time of day, go to the temple at a certain kind of day, abstain from meeting with certain kinds of people. And they believed that they lived this way, that their lives would be Clean. But on a hillside 2,000 years ago, Jesus flips this idea upside down and he says, you know what? Jesus desires that his disciples be clean from the inside out, not merely on the outside. He desires that those who follow him not only do what is right because it's pure and clean and good and acceptable for those who would live in the presence of God, but that they would do so for the right reasons and the second part of the biblical concept of purity is just that it's doing what is good and right and pure for no other reason than it is good and right and pure we might simply call this doing good because it's good or for the popular christmas song be good for goodness sake the pure in heart are meek as we looked at a few years ago or a few days ago they're meek because they prize gentleness They seek and they hunger for righteousness because they love righteousness. They're merciful because they love mercy. They have the right motive. They are doing good because it's good, not to gain an outward reward, not to gain outward recognition for their actions. They are singularly focused on doing good because God says, hey, this is good. And ultimately, they want to be near God. Their reward is nearness to God. This was something that the Pharisees of Jesus' day did not grasp. They were seeking the wrong reward. Look what James says in James 4.8. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Jesus was well acquainted with double-minded people. A double-minded person is someone who does one thing, but truthfully desires another. They do one thing, but truthfully desire another. It's like a a man who outwardly leads a clean life. He's married to one woman. He's got a beautiful family. He's a hard worker at his job. He's active in his church, but he has a mistress on the side that nobody knows about. You see, for the double-minded man, he wants you to believe that he is something that he's ultimately not. He wants the respect and the honor and the praise of those around him for leading a good life. What he really wants, in the depth of his heart, is the mistress. His allegiance is divided. His heart is not set on what is good, but ultimately, a double-minded person wants you to believe that their heart is set on what is good. Here's a big takeaway. You can do the right thing for the wrong reasons and it will be detestable in God's sight. You can do the right thing for the wrong reasons and it will be detestable in God's sight. God desires right action and right motivation. Right action and right motivation. And if you're saying, Jameson, when's this sermon gonna let up? It's not gonna strap in. Somebody asked the question, what is a pure-hearted person? If we were to define what it means to have a pure heart from a biblical perspective, I would say a pure-hearted person is one whose motives are unmixed, whose thoughts are holy, and whose conscience is clean. They're not thinking of two different things Their thoughts are pure, they're centered on Christ, they want a good thing, and their conscience is clean. They know why they're doing it, and they know that it is good. And so you might say, Pastor Jameson, how do I know if my heart is pure? Well, the first question is, do you want it to be? Do you want it to be pure? There's nothing inside the natural person that desires a clean heart. The natural propensity of humanity is to desire that our heart stays exactly the way it is because then we can continue to chase after what we really want and the Bible calls this sin. It's self-serving, self-glorification, desire for self and Jesus came 2000 years ago and died on a cross, not just to remove it from our actions, not just to give us clean hands, but he came to remove it from who we fundamentally are and give us a clean heart. That's what the Bible means when James says, have clean hands and a pure heart. So how could we illustrate this? In Matthew 12, Jesus said these words. He said, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. the tree is known by its fruit. Similarly, James said this. He asked a question in in chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. He says, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So let's say me and my wife are standing in our home, and we're looking out the side window of our house, and there's an apple tree out there. Let's say we're having a conversation, and my wife says, you know, honey, it sure would be nice if that Michigan apple tree were not a Michigan apple tree, but it were a Florida orange tree. And me being the loving and devoted husband who wants everything that my wife desires. That was a joke. Um, I, I, I hop in my car, and I drive to Kroger, and I buy a giant bag of fresh Florida navel oranges. And I come home and I go downstairs where my workbench is and I grab my nail gun and I go outside and I begin to pick all the apples off of this apple tree. We're saying, hey, get rid of these. And in their place, I take my nail gun and I begin to nail all of these fresh Florida oranges all over this apple tree. Is that tree an orange tree? What is it? It's an apple tree. It's an apple tree. I can dress the tree up however I want. I can pretend that it's bearing the fruit that I want it to bear, but it doesn't change the fact that it's still an apple tree. And those oranges that I've just nailed onto this apple tree are going to rot. What needs to be done to the tree to change the fruit that it's bearing is for, the, is for the tree to be uprooted and a new seed planted in its place. That's how you get a new tree. That's how you turn an apple tree into an orange tree. You plant a new tree. You remove the old tree and you tend this new tree to grow. The Bible says that just like this illustration, we need a new seed in our hearts. We need new hearts. We need our hearts to experience this initial purity, this this seed of saving faith that is then followed by a continual process of growing, a continual process of greater purity. And this comes only when we submit our lives to Christ and confess that on our own, our hearts are not pure. And we confess that all we can make are apples And on our own, we will never make oranges. It's in that moment when we confess that we are in deep need of God and we have impure motives and impure thoughts and impure desires, and we bring those to Christ that we catch our first glimpse of God in the face of Jesus, one who is totally pure, who lived his entire life in the face of God, seeing God for 33 years, every single millisecond of his life, obedient to what God said. The Lamb of God, without spot or blemish, we see him and we see that he is our only hope for purity. So we confess the impurity that's within us and we receive within us the seed of faith. James puts it this way, He says, receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And Christ begins the process of cleaning out our hearts. And he sanctifies us. This is what the Bible says about having a pure heart. It is initiated first by the saving grace and love of God. But it is a continual process. Let's ask another question. How... Will the pure in heart see God? So let's say we actually end up having pure hearts. How does the Christian who has submitted their life to Christ and now has a new heart, how do they see God throughout the course of their life? First is by becoming more like Christ. This is the first way in which we see God. God. Malachi 3 1 says this, The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. The Father God, the Lord of hosts, describes his son Jesus as the messenger of his new covenant promise, the gospel. He describes him as a refiner's fire and as fuller's soap. Now, a refiner is someone who worked with gold and silver, and his job was to refine the impure metals that were placed in front of him. He would put them into a crucible, usually made of clay, and he would heat it up and up and up and up and up to burn away all the impurities that were within, and he would sit by the crucible, and he would watch these precious metals As the heat rose and rose and rose and rose and it got hotter and hotter and hotter until all these impurities that we call dross would would rise up to the surface and so he could slowly scoop them away and remove them from the metal. And it's said that the refiner would know that the metal was pure enough when like a mirror sheen, the metal held, and he could see his face in its own reflection. Children of God, if this season of life feels like you're in the fire of affliction, like the heat is going up and up and up and up, if you feel like you cannot stand this heat anymore, I beg you to look up and see the face of Jesus. See the great forger of our faith and take heart as he stares into the fire of your affliction. Take heart. The Bible calls him the refiner and the refiner stands by the crucible. The refiner watches as life turns us over and over and over and over again. There's divine purpose in the flames that you're walking through. I don't care if it's sickness. I don't care if it's loss. I don't care if it's marriage issues. I don't care if your, your child is wayward. I don't care if you feel like you're, you're losing your mind. If you're in Christ, the refiner is in the fire. He's there. He's watching And here's our hope, guys. Impurities, the things that make us unclean, the impurities are not created in the fire, they're revealed in the fire. When we're going through afflictions, we can take heart that God's not adding impurities to our life. He's not throwing things in there to make us worse, but he's walking us through the flames so that we would shine more like him. That's his goal. And the impurities of our heart must rise to the surface so that the refiner can scoop them away and remove them from our lives. And that happens on the inside. Jesus said this in Mark 7, 15. He says, there's nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. It's not what we eat. It's not how we dress. It's not the people we hang out with. It's not the kind of music we listen to. It's what's already there. It's what's already in my heart that defiles me. When my children disobey and instead of lovingly correcting them, instead of showing them grace, I raise my voice and get angry at them. Why? Because there's self-centeredness in my heart. Because there's self-centeredness in my heart. It's not because of the question that my child asked me. It's because my child asked me a question and it's inconvenient for me to answer in this moment, and so what comes out? Anger. Or when my wife asks if she can spend a little bit of money on something she wants, and instead of listening in grace and saying, yes, honey, I say, don't you know how many bills we have? Don't you understand how much money goes into this? And this? like, why do you, why do you want that? It's not because I love my family so much or because I want my my house to grow and prosper. It's because I'm selfish. And at the end of the day, it sure would be nice if there was something left over for dad. That's the sinfulness of my own heart and it spills out on the people I love most and I'm willing to bet it does in your life as well. That same text says that Jesus is like a fuller's, soap. Now a fuller was a worker of cloth. A fuller was a person who would shear sheep and he would wash and wash and wash and rewash the wool that he took off of the sheep until it shone a bright white color. And the soaps that the fuller would use were strong and and sometimes even caustic and he would submerge them in deep, deep vats of water. And and as he pulled them out, he would put them through a mill that would press them over and over and over again. And at times, if the stains truly did not want to come out, he he would put them in sort of a waterfall of sorts and he would stamp them with his feet over and over and over and over again until all the dung and oil and dirt We're gone from the wool. If you're walking through a season where you're wondering why Christ seems to be so dead set on dunking you over and over and over again. It's like you come up for air and you breathe for just a moment before affliction comes again and you're right back in. It's like he's stomping you over and over as you move from one horrible situation to another. Listen. This is what he does, Christian. He's like a fuller who will not rest until the wool is spotless and white. He will continue to press, continue to work, not only so we can be pure, that's one of the goals, but so we can be used by him. That's what he's doing. He's consecrating not just our actions, not just the things we do, but he's consecrating our hearts so that the motives would flow into the actions and the actions would be seen as pure in his sight. It's no different than the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God resided in the tabernacle and in the temple and everything that came into the presence of God had to be washed with what? Fire and water and blood. It all had to be consecrated in order to come into his presence. And God is at work consecrating our hearts. He's working not just so we do good things, but so we do good things from a good place. That's what we need. That's what I need to do good things from a good place. He has no desire for Pharisees. I don't know if you've read the Bible, but Jesus doesn't really like Pharisees all that much. Those who do good with evil intent. And we come to Christ and he loves us as we are, but he's relentless in cleaning up our lives so that he can use us in new and better ways. Being a Christian is painful. Any old saints here been walking with Christ for 20, 30 years? Not me, 10 being a Christian is painful. At times, it's quite unpleasant. And I fear that some of us have been tempted to jump out of the tub that the fuller has us in or to, to jump out of the crucible because the fire feels too hot and, and the soap is too strong and the fuller is holding us under for far too long. But Christian, take heart. He's working. And he's working where you can't even perceive it at times. He's working on the inside and he's the only one who knows what purity looks like. That's why he wants to see his face reflected in your life. He knows what purity looks like and your walk towards purity might be very different than the people around you. I'll speak for myself, I'm not gonna speak for any of you. My life might be a lot more dirty and I might need a lot more pressing to get to the point where God wants me to be. And he does that. Secondly, the way we see God is by awaiting Christ's return. Paul says this in the book of Colossians, he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory, we await Christ's return. We hold on to the promise that our life is hidden in him, that he holds our life, and that he's not letting go. We hold on to the truth that, that, that he sees us and we are with him and he is with us. And the Bible says the way we do that, by holding on and awaiting and abiding in him, has some very practical ways. Paul goes on to say this, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Listen to this, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with his practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We are being washed and washed and rewashed, even as we attempt to put off these old things, as we await the return of Jesus, we prepare for the return of Jesus. Imagine with me a bride who is waiting for her groom in a faraway land. Now, she has his love. They're betrothed to be married. He loves her fully and deeply. His promise will be kept. They will be married. But this bride has a deep, deep desire that when her future husband beholds her for the first time, she will shine. Radiantly. She's excited. She's played this wedding scene over and over and over in her mind day after day as she awaits this man who is coming to claim her. So she does her hair and she paints her nails and she sews a beautiful new dress just for him. She whitens her teeth. She, she picks out special jewelry that will catch his eye. If she's a modern lady, she probably hits the gym. She might even refine her speech and the way she talks. She fixes her posture. The way she stands is different now. That's a picture of a person who is pure in heart. They want nothing more than to be pleasing to Jesus. And they want it because they want Jesus, nothing else. No deceit, no conceit no hidden motives, no rewards from man, no praise from anybody else, no double-mindedness. They're making themselves perfectly presentable for his arrival. Now there's a problem with my analogy because sinless perfection does not exist on this side of eternity. It does not exist. Sin in one way, shape, or form will remain in our lives. It will linger. Scripture even attests this in 1 John. John says that he who says that he has no sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. We all have impurities that will last throughout our life. So what we do is we set our mind on the prize For the bride, the prize is not losing weight or straightening her posture or refining her speech or whitening her teeth or getting a more voluptuous body. That's not the prize. Those are things she does because the prize is coming. She's doing those things because the prize is on its way. Jesus is the prize, and she's not doing it to gain his love. She already has his love. She's not doing it to gain his love, but out of the amazement that he could possibly love her. This is why she's changing her life. And the final way that the pure in heart will see God is simply this, by seeing Jesus face to face. One day, those whose hearts have been purified on earth, who's, who've been in the vat of the fuller, who've walked through the refiner's fire, they will enjoy a final purity in the presence of Jesus. One day, the bride will see her husband face to face and everything she's done and all of the pain she's gone through will be worth it. Inma- unimaginably worth it. The prize will be before her eyes. She will be betrothed to the one she loves. And any impurities that are in her heart will be cast away finally and completely. But until that day, we as the bride of Christ, we bring our impurities. We bring our sin. We bring our double mindedness of heart. We practice gospel transparency. We don't keep those thoughts inside, we confess them at the very least to God, if not to one another. We don't let those things fester. We bring them before the fuller and we ask him, please clean these away. We bring them before the refiner and say, please burn these away from my life. We repent and we confess and we abide and we trust in his power to change us even as we actively participate in the redemption that is working in our lives and we're preparing church, we're preparing for the wedding night. Have you ever met a bride who was not prepared for her wedding night? No, you haven't. It's a preposterous thought. We're preparing for the wedding night and we bring it all because Jesus has promised himself to us. You might ask the question, well, what it, in what ways does Jesus need to purify me? Here, listen, there isn't a moment of time, a thought that I will have, a conversation I will be a part of. There's not an emotion that I will feel or a glance I will take that I do not need Jesus to actively purify in the moment. He must purify every part of me. Every part of me. I need him moment by moment by moment. Paul David Tripp said this. He said, we serve a dissatisfied redeemer who will not rest until every microbe of sin has been delivered from every cell of every heart of every one of his children. That's what we've signed up for. That's what we've signed up for. And I know there are some of us in this room today we're doing a lot of external things to see God, to get a glimpse of Him, where we're we we're seeking this sort of spiritual experience, Him. We're fasting and praying and reading, and we might be wailing, and we're not watching certain things, and not eating certain things, and we're sort of checking the proverbial boxes because we wanna see Him. But I just, I just want us to be careful that we're not turning into modern day Pharisees who clean up the outside of the cup while the inside is dirty. And I feel like Christ has at the very least been saying to me, perhaps to the church, do you want to see me? Do you want to know me? Then bring, bring that wretched heart before me and lay it down. And submit to what I want to do in there. Let me lead you in purity and repentance and holiness and godliness and goodness and confession. And then with eyes of faith, you'll see me as I make myself known in your life. And you won't look up and behold me in some beautiful vision. probably won't appear to you in the dead of night. But you'll see me through my miraculous work of purifying your life from the inside out. That's how we'll see God in this life. As he works his work in our lives from the inside out. And there will be a day where something happens in your life where you do something and it's from a good place and there's no conceit and there's no deceit and there's nothing and you'll go, where did that come from? I just did a good thing because it's good. And your heart will leap with joy because God is working. So let me ask you guys a question as we close. It's very simple. What do you need to lay down before the refiner today? What needs to be laid down before him today? What needs to be washed by the fuller? You know, Christ He's like a good surgeon and he's going to do the surgery and it's going to be a lot messier and a lot more painful if we're flailing around while he does it. It's much better if we bring these things unto him and say, this needs to go. So as we continue, let's take 30 seconds and simply ask God, what needs to be cut away today so that I can see you more fully tomorrow?